Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Welcome to The Book Podcast, where we discuss books about the book, the Bible, with your hosts, Scott Moffitt, Gabriel Penfield, and Gary Karwaski. Are you out there wandering in the wilderness with no one to guide you, to disciple you in the faith? It could be you have no material that you know is faithful to the grace message. Well, wander no more. Today, we will examine a great discipleship manual on growing deeper in the abundant life, all based on the principles of God's grace rather than human performance. Hello, this is our 36th podcast of the book, and we certainly appreciate you taking the time to listen to our interviews with Christian authors of note. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast, would you please do so now? Subscribe and push the notification bell as well. Today, we have back with us our guest, Charlie Bing. We are so pleased that he could join us once again. Charlie is a THM and a PhD graduate of Dallas Seminary. He is a well-regarded Bible scholar who hosts his own podcast and has a website entitled Grace Life Ministries. We invite authors such as Charlie in order to equip you to choose books wisely. Today, we examine a discipleship workbook that I have personally used in discipling others. Charlie, you wrote this workbook a number of years ago following your time as pastoring in Texas. And then you helped co-found what is called Free Grace Alliance and your own ministry. Currently, Charlie, you travel around the United States and the world sharing the message of grace through your ministry of Grace Life. Charlie writes books, articles, and speaks at conferences. Charlie is a sportsman. He likes to fish and to hunt. Charlie has been married to Karen for how many years is it? Uh, Oh, my goodness. 44? Something like that. 44? And you share four children and two grandchildren, I believe. Uh, Eleven grandchildren. Eleven. Oh, it's moved on since uh, the last yeah. time I read it. <laughs> well, Charlie, let's begin our interview. Why did you write this manual? Did this idea come from um, your your um, time in seminary or was it suggested to you? What was the genesis of this work? Well, that's a good question. It's going to take a few minutes to answer that because it is a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a ministry in um, another state that distributes the gospel of John freely overseas, absolutely free. And mm-hmm. they they were getting a lot of requests back from those people who received the gospel of John saying that we wanted something deeper. They wanted something to get them started in the Christian life. So they asked me, commissioned me to write some kind of discipleship follow-up material. Okay, so in doing that, I'm thinking to myself, well, there's already a lot of uh, new Christian material out there, discipleship material out there. What would I, why would I do it? What would I do? Why does it need to be done? Does it need to be done differently? So as I surveyed the material by, you know, by well-known ministries, which which I have used in the past even, I, I looked at them and they're pretty much all the same. It's a checklist type of approach to discipleship, how to pray, how to witness, how to confess your sins, how to read the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a Bible guy and I like Bible exposition. And I thought that, well, the Bible should give us some direction then uh, expositionally. And so I started to think, is there a book in the Bible that actually helps people grow from A to Z in the Christian life? And I settled on the book of Romans. It caught my attention because Romans starts out with sin, goes to salvation, goes to sanctification, then Mm -hmm. security, then God's sovereignty, and then service. Nice little outline that I use in the book with uh, alliterated S's. So I was fascinated with the idea that the book of Romans really grounds people in grace. But the other thing about the book of Romans is it uses grace more than any other book in the New Testament 28 times. And so the emphasis is on grace. Now, that's the other thing I found missing in other discipleship materials was the element of motivation by grace. Most of the time, our motivation is to get through a course, get a certificate, um, whatever the whatever the case. Yeah. But a lot of people don't seem to continue on from there. Um, you know, you can do anything if you're motivated properly. So we don't want just inform- we don't want just information. 
we want transformation and we want um, motivation because when a person is motivated, they'll continue on uh, in a life of discipleship, no matter what the hardships are, no matter what the material they're using. So I think motivation is a large missing factor. So in every one of the chapters, I when I'm talking about discipleship in this book, I also have seven sections on discipleship, including Romans, two on John, uh, seven on Romans, and seven on discipleship. Um I include the motivation. Why, when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, do this. And then he usually includes a reward. And we want to talk about that reward as a motivation for people. So when people understand God's grace in salvation, that's John, two lessons in John. And then they understand what grace gives them in Romans, seven uh, lessons in Romans. Then, or is it six? Then they'll be more motivated to follow Jesus's challenges to discipleship. And I list seven of them that he stated of course there there are more but uh, he clearly states seven conditions for discipleship so that's where the book came from mm-hmm. and um and then i got the right to publication and uh i've been using it for a long time and it's been used around the world it's really good because yeah. I, I know Ma- matthew book looks like this yeah. there it is yeah yeah matthew twenty eight eighteen says to make converts right no, it says to make disciples of all nations. And I think a lot of people kind of stop at the convert, stop at the evangelism stage and move move and skip the discipleship phase, right? Ignore it. Um, but you mentioned John, and I know a lot of people that we've either talked to or I've heard kind of advocate to using John as the evangelism book, right? Stay within the book of John when you're sharing the gospel because um, that's written specifically to unbelievers. Would you prescribe to that view? Would you recommend going to other verses outside of John or would would you recommend staying in John when sharing the gospel with somebody? Appreciate that. Um, yeah. John is a key book in sharing the gospel. It certainly is. It states as it's one of its purposes is to uh, bring people to Christ, faith in Christ. So no, mm-hmm. no question about that. It uses believe in the, in the book. That's one thing I need to revise is it. it I said, it uses believe as a condition for salvation about a hundred times. Mm-hmm. It uses the word believe 98 times in the verb form, but only about 46 of those are really conditions for salvation, but still you, you, it makes the point. Mm-hmm. It's always in the verb form, but that doesn't mean that John is the only book written with the idea of explaining the gospel, perhaps to somebody who uh, doesn't believe. I mean, after mm-hmm. all, why did Matthew try to convince right to the Jews, convincing them that Jesus is the Messiah? The ultimate goal, of course, would be for them to believe. I recently preached the Book of Romans just Saturday, and mm-hmm. uh, I believe that there was someone in our uh, conference there who believed, according to his mm-hmm. testimony. Um, I preached it in uh, New Zealand uh, a month to June. In June, I preached the Book of Romans also. When I got to chapter 3 and explain, explained that justification is freely by his grace, a Jehovah's Witness in the congregation who had been stubbornly obstinate uh, about the Christian message came up to my host there and said, you know, I finally got it. There's nothing I have to do. And he's rejoicing. And I just heard he just got baptized. So can a person get, I mean, that's not the first testimony I've had of people getting saved from the book of Romans. Um, Mm -hmm. So eternal life is what John emphasizes, but uh, justification, the forgiveness of sins and the new birth, um, are all things that can appeal to people coming from different aspects of their experience and their needs. So uh, I I usually go first to the book of John. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But if I'm teaching the book of Romans, I see a lot of people get saved. Yeah. Good. Well, salvation certainly begins with an understanding of God's grace. And in fact, the purpose statement that's found in, John chapter 20, verse 31 says that it's for the purpose of evangelism. Um, Why is it so important to begin with the concept of grace? Well, I think grace is at the heart of everything, just not only our salvation, but the Christian life as well. And, you know, God is love. That's clear in the scriptures. We characterize him as a God of love. But if you think about it, Love is useless to us unless it's communicated to us. How is it communicated to us? It's by a free gift. That's where grace comes in. So grace is how we experience God's love. How do we experience grace? That's through faith. So that involves a discussion of faith. So grace is uh, an absolutely free gift. If we don't have the correct understanding of 
grace as an absolutely free gift, then we're going to be in for big problems. Um, the The Bible clearly says that you cannot mix works with it. Romans eleven six. If you, if there's any works involved, it's no longer grace. And um, uh, in uh, it's uh, Ephesians two eight and nine says it's a free gift of God. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's plenty of uh, a definition to the word grace in the scriptures. God's undeserving favor towards and salvation towards sinners. And it comes from the word gifts. So we we cannot compromise it by calling it cheap grace, costly grace, or uh, making a commitment in order to get grace. All these things compromise the idea of grace and set us off on the wrong track and incorrect gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I guess I want to get to, then let's just talk about what is the defi- biblical definition of faith itself. Because we have, we just talked about a Calvinist, Fred. They have the concept that you got to be regenerated before you can have faith to believe, and uh, of course, we will. We don't hold to that. Um, what is biblical faith anyway, and how do you exercise it? I believe biblical faith simply means to be convinced that something is true, persuaded that something is true and worthy of trust. Some people use the word trust as a synonym. I have no problem with that. Mm. Uh, I think sometimes uh, faith appeals to the intellect. Sometimes it might appeal to the will uh, in the scriptures. Uh, Jesus said, you know, that, but you were not, you were not willing uh, to come to me. Um, but he also says, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ and so forth. So there, uh, faith is just being convinced that something is true and persuaded that something is true so that I will trust in it. It's a personal appropriation of God's truth. Uh, you can describe it that way as well. Um, that's how I see faith. And and how, your second part of your question was, how do we oh, appropriate it? Yeah, how do we appropriate it? Is it something that we do? Is it something that we get? Oh. That I don't want to get into the stickiness of election and things like that. But um, you know, how does a person come to faith? Yeah. Well, the Bible speaks about God drawing people to salvation in John 6, 44. And I've done a study on that. It's in my grace notes and in my books. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that uh, it's a um, uh, a synergistic process where drawing God draws people through his word, through his teaching. I think that's clear in the context there. And I developed that. He draws people through his word and then we respond, uh, but he doesn't force us. We, mm. we still have the free will to respond. Um, in faith. And so faith is our our positive response or acceptance of his truth. So it's, it's uh, I, I like to call it a congruence. Uh, our will is congruent with God's will. They work to, in other words, they get, work together, they flow mm-hmm. together. Uh, it's not a one-sided process where God forces us to believe, nor is it uh, simply due to our own uh, self-will. Yeah. I got a few words that are typically used with salvation, right? We have submission, humility, repentance um kind of those three words those ideas submission and repentance how does that play into our salvation experience well you probably could relate those words to salvation if you use them correctly mm-hmm. uh if, for example we submit to god's truth yeah but what some people want to say is that we must submit to him as lord of our life i reject that idea mm-hmm. uh we repent means to change your mind and when we believe in Christ as Savior, we're changing our mind about something. So if it's used in that sense, it's okay. But if we talk about it as turning from sin in order to gain salvation, then it's being misused. Um, and uh, humility, uh, we're not saved because we're humble. But I think there's a certain amount of humility that recognizes I'm wrong and God is right. And uh, we're not saved by that humility, but it's off, often a, hum- a humbling thing to realize that what the gospel is saying and how much God loves me and how I've lived without him. So, I mean, those words can be involved in it, but that doesn't define the gospel or the condition for salvation. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've used it in your previous book. Salvation is simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy to accept. Like it's hard to admit that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Yeah, exactly. Recently we interviewed a a gentleman who was in messianic ministries and um, he talked a lot about the law um, as being somewhat necessary in not only coming to faith, but in living out the Christian life. 
So my question, Charlie, is what role does the law, specifically the Mosaic law, play in our justification and also in our sanctification? Okay, good question, Scott. Uh, the law as given to the Jews, I think, represented God's righteous standards. And it was not given to save them. It was given to show them their sin, to give them a constitution to live by. Uh, it was good for them. They needed uh, to know how to have fellowship with God through the worship, sacrifices, rituals, and so forth. And they needed to have social order. So it helped constitute the nation of Israel and organize it. When it comes to the Christian, however, we know that Christ fulfilled the law. And so now we're dead to the law. So the law really has no effect upon us, except that the righteous standards of God remain. So the law was how God's righteous standards were codified for the nation of Israel. How are they codified for the Christian? Well, we have the uh, commands and exhortations of the New Testament, but we also have the law of Christ, the law of liberty, the law of love, which we are told if we do all of that, we fulfill the law and the prophets. So for the Christian... Uh, our main, our that's why it's called the first commandment, and the, and the most important commandment is to love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those things, you fulfill the spirit of the law. But we're no longer under the Old Testament law in any way. But many of those things are repeated, of course, in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, we've been talking about salvation, going to faith. Except your book is on discipleship, mm. so it seems that. We need to move to that uh, direction and talk about something um, like progressive sanctification. Um, what is that? And how does that help move us uh, to making progress in our Christian life? Okay. Well, first of all, of course, what you did was separate justification from sanctification, which is absolutely necessary. It's a big mistake that people make today is taking verses of the Bible addressing our Christian growth and sanctification or discipleship and bringing them into the gospel, totally corrupting Amen. the gospel. Yeah, so first of all, all the time. Absolutely. So let's keep that separate. And when we talk, talk about sanctification as progressive, we realize that it we can only be sanctified because we're justified. So justification is the basis for our sanctification. <clears throat> and then sanctification then is, is basically growing in Christ. Uh, discipleship, and there are many exhortations to do that, and of course, many, many exhortations to show us uh, to obey, and that, that would get us um, growing in the Lord. <clears throat> and of course, that includes things like uh, Bible study, reading this, abiding in His Word, uh, all, the, all the characteristics of a disciple help us to grow in our commitment to Him, which is what sanctification is really all about. Uh, and what we also know about sanctification is it, it varies by degrees with people, rate of growth, uh, the amount of growth. It all depends, I think, on our cooperation with God mm. and our understanding of the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit to do that in us. So it's not a uniform thing. Um, and it's very, very difficult to compare people and measure or try to prove your salvation by sanctification. That's impossible, in my opinion. Yeah. So sanctification is a process in time, while justification, is that a process or is that a momentary uh, decision? I believe justification is a once-for-all event in an instant of time. Uh, sanctification takes a lifetime. Um, so, I mean, yeah, with, there's, you know, my works include charts about that and the difference between justification mm -hmm. and sanctification. It's like being born, which happens in a moment of time. And growing, which is the rest of our life. So that's a good analogy huh? that uh, scriptures use. So these people that <laughs> mesh both justification and sanctification, co-mix them together. I think that undermines their security of the person, whether or not they're saved or not, depending on their behavior. So can you explain to us why the security of the believer is so important to living out the abundant life that God gives us through his grace? You make a good point, Scott, because anytime we bring performance into the issue of security, insurance, or salvation, we automatically are going to lose our assurance of salvation because yeah. our performance is never 100%. Mm -hmm. yep. So you have to have um, a secure basis for growth. And uh, until that is settled and our assurance of salvation is settled, you're always going to be looking back, wondering mm -hmm. if you're saved. 
And I always say you can't move forward. You can't grow forward if you're always looking backwards. So security gives us that, that, that firm assurance that we are accepted by God because of what he has done, not what I am doing or have done. Uh, the moment I turn my my focus inward to my my motivations, my heart, my actions, or anything that has to do with me, I'm in danger of losing that assurance of salvation because I'm going to find less than a 100% standard. When I keep my eyes focused on Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, it's always going to be 100%. His work is always 100%. It is finished. Amen. And so on that basis, we can go forward securely. Uh, one of my biggest... Uh, when I teach this book, uh, or when I teach the book of Romans, and I usually follow the outline in the book. When I get to the issue of security, you would, or maybe not, would be surprised how many people are living with a lack of assurance of salvation because they've yeah. never settled the issue of security. Mm-hmm. So wherever I go, I give an invitation when I get to Romans chapter 8, and I almost always receive, even to me, a surprising response to that. Mm-hmm. I People walk away assured with a big smile on their hearts. All right. Let's clarify that just a little bit if I can get in here. Um, what is our security based on? Because I think that's the foundation of it. We continue to be looking back at ourselves. That indicates to me that I believe my security is based on what I do or don't do. Our security must be based on something more solid than that. Let's clarify that a little bit, Charlie. Yeah, our security is based on what Jesus did on the cross mm-hmm. when he said it is finished. And he rose from the dead. And as long as those facts are secure and I'm I'm uh, appropriating those facts and believing them and his promise of salvation, I can be absolutely sure because he is the one who said whoever believes in me has everlasting life. So it's based on his promise. It's totally objective and outside of ourselves. It's based in historical facts. What Jesus did It's based on a promise that he has given that remains. And all of those are outside of myself. I I don't want to turn inward or be introspective or examine myself uh, in my heart, see if I really believed or if I had a head faith. I mean, all these terms are being, Mm -hmm. the Bible doesn't qualify faith in any of those ways. It just talks about you either believe or you don't. Mm -hmm. So I have to believe in something objective outside of myself. And that's the basis for my security and assurance of salvation. Yeah. Let me quickly read. You're talking about Romans 8. I'll just read the last two verses of that. Um, Verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? That's a good one. We're in that, right? We're part of that. We can't separate ourselves from God, right? God saved us. We accepted that by faith. Nothing we do can separate us from God. Um, moving past Romans 8, right? You go into 9 and 11, chapters 9 through 11. You start talking about Israel, right? Um, can we move a little bit into that? Uh, my question for you would be, um, you state that the key to understanding God's sovereign plan is by looking at the nation of Israel. Can you explain that a little bit? Like how how can we see God's sovereign plan looking at Israel? How does that work? Okay, uh, the history of Israel of course, is a history pretty much of disobedience and rebellion, and yet God has never given up on his people. He's promised them a future. I think it's true for all of us, Charlie, in a lot of ways. That's why I think God uses the nation of Israel as an analogy for the individual Christian's experience. Many people people get it wrong. They try to compare the individual Christian experience to individual Israelites. Israelites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's the nation that God uses as an analogy. Mm-hmm. God doesn't give up on the nation. Now, that doesn't mean that some of the nation are unbelievers. But in the end, the nation itself will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six, And that 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 promise is one that's irrevocable. He says that in eleven twenty nine. It's and God is works in the same way with us. He promises us our eternal salvation in an irrevocable promise. And he doesn't go back on his word. So in that sense, our experience parallels Israel. So Israel's history is one of rebellion. And right now they're judicially blinded, allowed Gentiles to come in. and But they're still a faithful remnant. And then we know someday during at the end of the tribulation, 
Israel will be restored when Jesus returns and they recognize him as the Messiah, Zechariah um, 12 and 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God. Yeah. Did you have something else? No. Um, I don't know what else. Okay. Sorry, I, didn't, I, I thought, <laughs> I thought you were still talking, but yeah, if God, God chose Israel, he stuck with Israel, no matter their obedience, God chose us. And however you want to define that, he's going to stick with That's us. That's a no mystery though. That's a mystery I wanted to ask Charlie about. Um, yeah, go there. Why, why did God choose the Gentiles? He's, he set aside Israel and he chose the Gentiles. Can you explain that mystery to us? A lot of people don't really understand that. Why did God set aside the Jews so he could turn to the Gentiles? Yeah, why, why is that a mystery? Um, well, in, ter- in terms of a mystery, I think the mystery is that they would be together in one body in Christ. Uh, but but we have a God that loves the world, and his plan was to use the Jews to reach Israel. But because of the rebellion, they didn't fulfill that purpose. And so God has set them aside temporarily so he could turn to the to the Gentiles, I think. Um, um, so, I, okay. you know, I mean, he, his love is for everyone. And mm-hmm. the Old Testament prophets predicted that the Gentiles would come in. But it is a mystery that they, we are one in one body in the church. I think mm-hmm. that's specifically what the mystery is referring to. Mm-hmm. And God did it simply because he, he wanted to reach everyone. And, you know, I always look at the example of Jesus in John chapter four, how he went out of his way to go through Samaria. Scriptures say he needed to go or he must go or he, mm-hmm. uh, through Samaria. Whereas most Jews avoided it, Jesus went out of his way to reach those who are out of the way, um, who were considered half-breeds, dirty, and unclean. Well, the Jews were instructed to reach out to the nations of the world, but in fact, they did the opposite. They turned in, and they wouldn't they wouldn't even allow a Gentile shadow to fall on them or have contact with them in any way. So it's kind of funny that God turns away from the people who are called his chosen people, and then he, um, you know, shows his love to the Gentile world through Christ. As yep. you're talking about, he goes to um, Samaria and Tyre and Sidon and those places, which demonstrates yeah, that's, it. That's what God wanted Jonah to do. I'm preaching Jonah this Sunday. True. So, uh, yeah. That's what God wanted Jonah to do. I think Jonah is a picture of the nation of Israel in some sense. Good point. And, don't send me. Yeah. <laughs> don't send me. And he gets disciplined, you know, down in the deep. And, uh, mm-hmm. and he finally goes, but uh, not very willingly. And so Israel... It's kind of a picture of the nation of Israel. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the purposes that that little book serves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about spiritual transformation is uh, a product of God's grace and living a Christian life. Is this transformation of the heart or of the mind primarily? And are there any verses in Scripture? I'm thinking of Romans 12, 2, that talk about this primarily, or is it a combination of both? What What is your thinking on that, Charlie? Well, because your book is about thinking, about the transformation of the mind. Yeah, usually, well, that's where we, that's the first port of entry for information is our mind. So we have mm-hmm. to use our minds to study the Scriptures. Uh, however, the New Testament uses the word mind and heart interchangeably. So I think we need to be careful about being too psychological about that. Mm-hmm. Um, do we believe with the heart or the mind? You know, I, mm-hmm. I like what Blaise Pascal said. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's a French philosopher. He said, the heart has reasons which reason does not know. Mm-hmm. Think about that. <laughs> so uh, not always uh, is the mind totally, I think, engaged in, in some of the things that we we believe in. I mean, we intuit some things, I guess is what he was saying. Uh, but in the scriptures, you'll if you do a study and search, and it comes out in some of my writings, um, the mind and heart used interchangeably. But the mind is what we focus on when it comes to information. Of course, it's the it. If you want to talk about the heart or something, maybe a little bit distinct. That's what maybe processes that information and uh, appropriates it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, let's move on to uh, defining disciple a little bit more. Uh, disciple is typically defined as a learner. Um, there's a teaching out there. We won't identify the persons, 
uh, that can assume that if you're a believer, you're automatically a disciple. And if you're not a disciple, you look back and you can't be a believer if you're not a disciple. Is there a difference between a believer and a disciple? How does a believer become a disciple? Uh, and how do you know when that transformation is taking place, that you're moving towards discipleship? Yeah, the Lordship Salvation View wants to say that disciples are born, not made, because you make your commitments up front and that's how you're saved. Of course, that changes the gospel. So I reject that view. Uh, Jesus told the disciples who were believers how to be disciples. In fact, he said it more than once. He constantly was challenging the disciples to be more of a challenge, uh, to be more of a disciple. And I think that's one thing we need to keep in mind is that uh, discipleship is almost a moving target. The end goal is to be like Jesus. Yeah. But the the commitments, uh, they, they continued to compound in a sense, I guess I would say. And so... His disciples are constantly being challenged to be more of a disciple. And if you just look at the life of Peter, which I think is given to us as a model of discipleship, it even included his failure uh, in the process. And Jesus showed how disciples deal with failure and how he deals with disciples who fail. But uh, it, it's, it's a process which is obvious because how can an unbeliever understand what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross, to follow mm -hmm. Jesus? to abide in your, in God's word. Those mm. things to an unbeliever wouldn't even make sense and they wouldn't have enough knowledge to know what those things mean. So in other words, you would have to educate somebody into what those mean before they could believe in Jesus Christ as savior. It just makes salvation more difficult, not attainable. And then the commit, the commitments to discipleship are so uh, strong, challenging uh, and almost absolute that uh, how can anybody ever know for sure that they're saved? Have you mm -hmm. totally deny yourself? Yeah, that's one of the problems I have with this lordship salvation teaching is those that teach it are not going. If they were honest, they would say they're not totally consistent in their own lives, and and so we could question their salvation, which a lot of them end up doing. They question their own salvation because they're they don't see the it's true the commitment. Yeah, they admit it themselves, so they don't have one hundred percent assurance. They they'll say, well, we have ninety nine percent or something. But I've never heard one say that we have 100% assurance. Yeah. Putting the discipleship requirement up front, I think, really is a hindrance for people to come to Christ. i got to do all of this in order to believe. So how much content? I'm going to go back a little bit. How much content must be believed in order to be saved? And uh, do you, how much of that do you need to understand just to be saved? Uh, because when you put when you up front discipleship requirements, that's... That's, I think, a hindrance to come into Christ. Yeah, and, and God loves people. He wants them to be saved. So why would he make it difficult? He doesn't make it easy, but he makes it simple. There's a difference between so easy. Uh, I think a person needs to understand that there is a God who uh, who has sent his son, uh, who is God in the flesh. Uh, how much they need to understand about the deity of Christ, um, I'm a little foggy on that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, exactly what they understand. Dr. Charles Ryrie told me one time that he, if he was pushed to the wall, he didn't know what he would say about how much a person needs to understand about the deity of Christ. Uh, but we need to understand that he has at least divine authority and uh, <clears throat> calling him the son of God is the title of deity. So it's hard to get around that and that he died on the cross. There's a substitutionary death there in my place. And then we have to also understand the resurrection. That's why it's named as a great proposition of the gospel in mm. first Corinthians 15 because mm -hmm. a dead savior can't save anybody. Uh, so I say you have to believe in the person and the provision and then the promise of Jesus Christ. And the promise oh, okay. is that he will give eternal life to those who believe. So mm. it, I think those are the essential elements of the content of the gospel. In your book, you talk about becoming a devoted disciple and that that devotion is expressed through worship your priorities, and your obedience. Can you explain each of these to us? And can a disciple lose his devotion to Christ? Yeah, of course, a disciple can lose his devotion to Christ, just like Peter did. He followed up to a point, and then he lost it. So, I mean, there's examples of that in the scriptures. Um, a devoted disciple, if you think of someone who is devoted to another person in love, then they're going to spend time with that person in love uh, that they're in love with. And uh, we might, might say that that's devotion and how we display that with God is in 
I think in our worship life and how we we come to Him and uh, and worship Him. Um, so you said devotion. Does that means Sunday mornings only. <laughs> I mean, is that worship? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, that's a good point. I know. I think I think worship is a lifestyle, and uh, it involves prayer, of course, that we're, where we're talking to God. And I hope that that's a daily or uh, twenty-four hour seven thing. Uh, where to pray ceaselessly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I do have my devotions in the morning, but I also find myself praying throughout the day about things. Um, mm -hmm. The other day, my granddaughter lost her purse and she was very, very upset about it. And I said, have you asked God for it? Well, they asked God for it and, and they found it after a couple of days of having it lost. So uh, mm -hmm. the littlest things sometimes I'll bring, I'll bring to God. Mm -hmm. um, so it involves worship. And then you said the, the other two things. Priorities. That, priorities of course our priorities uh because jesus taught that you have to love him more than you love your own family uh, put mm -hmm. him first he used the uh the uh, idiom of hate which is a way of saying to choose someone else instead of you doesn't mean that you actually hate your family and then another passage he uses the word love me more mm -hmm. than them so in other words in a we have an exclusive love for the lord jesus christ that exceeds our love for anything mm -hmm. else in this world that's what that's the goal of discipleship. I think that's a hard one because many people put relationships first, hobbies first, mm -hmm. other things become their priorities. Mm -hmm. um, but our priority is our relationship with him. So you have worship and priorities. And then the third thing you said it's obedience. Mm -hmm. Obedience, of course. Uh what is it, John 14, 21? If those mm -hmm. uh who obey my commands are the ones who love me. So if I love somebody, if I love my wife and she asks me to take out the trash, I already did it this morning <laughs> in the rain. In That's the rain. Good, good, Charlie. There so you go. I'm devoted to my wife. Check the box. In the rain. And if she asks me to fix uh, something, I, I fix it. I mean, I, I, I want to please her by doing what she asks me to do or expects me to do. And it's the same with, thing with God. We want to please him because we love him. And um, we love him because he first loved us. And so we're going to obey his commandments, not out of a sense of legalism, but out of a sense of uh, this is how I can I can get a more intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's what John 14, 21 promises. That Jesus will make himself known to us if we obey his commands uh, in a greater way. Yeah. I mean, dwelling a bit on John 15 and 1 John, where it talks about a lot about abiding, right? Um, one of the questions we have um, is, is obeying the same as abiding? Or in other words, if I obey God, does that automatically mean I'm abiding? Or is abiding more than obedience? Um, hmm. Do you have any thoughts on like the difference between those two concepts, if there is one? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I probably want to think about it a little bit more, but... Hmm. I think ab abiding uh, implies or might include obedience. Because when he says, mm. uh, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. Mm. To abide means to have a close relationship with uh, a dependent relationship. Maybe we might say to be intricately, intricately uh, involved with something. So if we're abiding in his word, it only makes sense that we're going to not just know it and study it, but obey it. Mm. I don't know if I would limit it to just uh, uh, equivalence in in meaning, but it certainly involves obedience, I think. Yeah. But yeah, we have to make sure we understand that abide is different from believe. Yep. Abiding is a deeper, you can believe, but abiding is more of a consistent, more of a um, accepting the full, the full blessing that God has for us, the full like, we can believe and live in sin. We can believe, but not be abiding. And we lose out on that fellowship with God that he promises. Like that's what first John's all about. Right? Yeah. First, first John, I think amplifies the, the upper room discourse like John 13, 14, Could Jonah be an example of um, obeying without abiding. It could be exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. See, obedience can be done. Uh, with a legalistic attitude, we can obey. There's a lot of Christians who obey God, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it to impress others or to think they earn their salvation. So abiding is more of an intimate relationship that you can't, you can't fake. You can fake to other people, but not to yourself or to God abiding. Um, that, that, that 
because that involves a relationship. Obedience doesn't necessarily involve a relationship. It's, can it's, we can we ever obey with the complete with completely right motivations? Like, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Like, can somebody obey with completely right motivations, or because of our sin nature, do we always have um, some bad motivations in there? I think we can probably abide with good motivations because okay. Paul and the other writers often compliment the readers on their obedience. Mm. Um, but Paul also is aware that he doesn't always know his motivations. He says that in first Corinthians four, mm. verse five and six, I think uh, he, he says, called himself the chief of all sinners too. Yeah. And he says, I'm going to wait. Mm. He says, I don't even judge myself. I'm going to wait for that day. Mm. So the judgment seat of Christ will reveal our motivations, but I think, I think, yeah, uh, a person can obey with, uh, with good motivations. Yeah. Oh, you brought up the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We're probably getting off track here just a little bit, but I can't help it. Is that really a great, I know Scott's laughing. Is that a motivation for living the Christian life that, I'm going to be standing before Jesus Christ at the Bema seat. Is that a legitimate one for Christians? Um, I had something else in mind, but when you brought that up, it's like, I got to follow up on this. <laughs> That's fine. Let me put it this way. The older I get, the more of a motivation it is to me. <laughs> I'm serious about the closer that. It I, agree, is. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I'm serious about that. As a, as a younger Christian, uh, it was something in the distance, you know, now mm -hmm. that I'm older, I realized that at any moment I could be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. So what did I say and do uh, today that I might not be very happy with at the judgment seat of Christ? I think it is a motivation to consider everything that we do today has consequences in the future. Um, the, re the rewards, I'll leave that to God because I've done good things and I've done bad things. And so he's going to have to figure that out and balance it out. I'll be happy mm -hmm. with it, whatever he gives me. But I don't want to be ashamed before him. And I don't want to him to be disappointed in me at all. So that's my main motivation. I'll, I don't know what my rewards would be. That doesn't motivate me as much as it is pleasing the Lord and getting a mm. pleasing um, review at the judgment seat of Christ. However, that is earlier. Yeah, you talked well done, Dolph. Good and faithful servant. Yeah, good. Earlier, you talked about Luke nine twenty three, in which we're <clears throat> instructed by Christ to deny self, pick up your cross or his cross and follow Christ. It sounds like a selfless life. It sounds like a life of suffering. And you talk about that in your book saying that suffering is part of the Christian experience. Are we to seek ways to suffer in order to earn greater rewards or uh, how does suffering fit into the Christian life? I, I know some Christians do, I would say, from a you know a superficial evaluation of their life, they're not suffering at all. Will they earn less reward? Uh, will there be less judgment for them at the judgment seat of Christ? Uh, can you explain how that all goes together, and what does Jesus mean by pick up His cross and follow, deny self, and um, so on and so forth? Okay. Well, I don't think we should seek to suffer. I think we should seek to live a godly life in God and. And Paul says, whoever lives godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So mm -hmm. if we live a godly life. We will suffer persecution. We'll be stand, taking a stand for even in our culture in America, where we have religious freedom and Christianity is a predominant religion. Even here, you take a stand for God's truth. You're going to suffer. You're going to be canceled if you don't buy into woke, woke uh, social theories and so forth. Mm -hmm. So we don't really have to seek it. We just have to live a godly life. And, mm -hmm. um, and by the way, Luke says, take up your cross daily, Luke's mm -hmm. version of that. And uh, mm -hmm. that shows that it's not talking about salvation. I think it's talking about the willingness to suffer for Jesus Christ and your association with him. Um, mm -hmm. You know, whether that be ridicule or, you know, in America, it's not going to be physical persecution so much, although it's oftentimes it seems to be that way these days. Um Mm -hmm. Some countries, you know, I talk, I go in many countries and there are people, have, it's very common to have an audience of people who have all been beaten for the Lord. They've been beaten mm -hmm. because of their Christian faith or they don't have a job because of their Christian faith. They live in a Muslim or a Hindu society, mm -hmm. Buddhist society. Um, mm -hmm. So they're just and never going to have a good income. Uh, 
they're they're taking up their cross for their identity with Jesus Christ. They're bearing that that suffering because of uh, who they are and how they identify with them. All right, we're looking at Charlie Bing's discipleship manual, Living in the Family of Grace. I hope you can see that. And he instructs the believer on how to, well, first of all, get into God's family. And secondly, how to grow deeper in God's grace. And finally, how to become a devoted disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, do you have any more questions for Charlie? Um, I don't know. Go ahead. Well, you go ahead, Greg. Uh, Greg, what is your name again? <laughs> Gabe. Gabe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was talking with somebody last night about like the difference between spiritual disciplines and the in growing spiritually. Because I think uh, I, in the past, have confused the two, right? I do my spiritual disciplines. I read the Bible. I pray. I memorize. I do all this stuff. But I don't see spiritual growth. Um do you have any advice or do you have any thoughts on like how to have spiritual disciplines, but also grow spiritually through them? Like how do I do them meaningfully? How do I like, how do I connect the two aspects? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Any? Well, that's a very good question. Kate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think disciplines are important, especially for new Christians. It gets them going in some good habits, but there always needs to be a reminder of why we're doing it. Uh, not just what to do, but why we're doing it. And that's what the book is talking about when we talk about the motivations of grace. And so it's not just, I have to have my quiet time today, but I, God has so blessed me. I get to, I get to meet with him today. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a difference in attitude uh, and it, it starts with God's grace because he has done so much for me. I get to meet with him today and tell him how much I love him. Thank him again mm-hmm. for new things and maybe ask him for some things. Um, it really does start and end with, with God's grace. Mm. And that that's why it needs to be in the mix of discipleship. And it can't just be a checklist approach to discipleship, just disciplines. Um, I talked that the, about that in the introduction to the book. Um, so I don't, yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. And a lot yeah. of and that, that's what concerns me is a lot of people do the disciplines and they think they're mature Christians because they know how to mm. study the Bible. They know, or they, they, they go to an all night prayer meeting or something. <laughs> But their hearts could be far from the Lord at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I think of Navigators 2.7, the manual we mm-hmm. used uh, quite a bit when I first came to um, to um, become growing in my Christian life that was used. And then um, your manual, which focuses more on the process of becoming uh, deeper in your relationship with Christ. And that's based on the um, understanding of God's grace in your life and how that works out. So uh, we really want to recommend the book to people to use. It's a manual that can be used one-on-one or it can be used in conjunction uh, with a group. Do you have any perimeters or do you have any suggestions on how to use the book? Uh, is 10 people good, 20 people good? Is there any, any amount that's not good? What, what are your recommendations as far as that uh, goes, Charlie? Yeah, my my uh, recommendations are in the introduction to the book, actually. I say you can use it. I originally designed it free from a lot of uh, American idioms and figures of speech because it was going to be sent around the world and I wanted it to be easy to translate. So it's very yeah. simple. It's, it's, I mean, the depth, the scriptures are profound, but I wrote it in a simple, with as simple English as I could so that it can be used one-on-one small groups. It's been used with one-on-one with kids. I know I've, I hear, I've heard all kinds of reports, uh, youth groups, teenagers, junior high, senior high, with women's groups, men's groups, with classes. Some people give it to every new member of their church. Um, mm-hmm. So it's been used in all different ways. I'm very gratified by that. We are revising the cover, and we want to revise the insides to look a little bit more contemporary because it's one of my first books, older books. But it's gotten a lot of use. I don't promote it a lot because I always have something new to promote. But if I could, I probably would promote this almost first uh, among my works because mm-hmm. it's it's been very helpful to people and it really grounds you in grace. You can't go wrong with the book of Romans. It's not me. It's the book of Romans that we look at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I personally used it and found it very helpful, not only as an individual, uh, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ personally, but also in uh, pastoral ministry, using it with our church and seeing people deepen their lives. So I want to thank you for 
um, producing the book. And I think you print it, don't you, uh, yourself? Uh, yeah, um, we, we do print it ourselves. So mm -hmm. yeah. I know it's available at your website. Do you want to promote that uh, now so people can find the book? Well, the easiest thing to do is to get our app, GL Ministries. Uh, that is the name of the app, GL Ministries. Uh, and go to the bookstore there, or you go to gracelife.org in the bookstore there as well. Is it available at uh, Amazon? You know, I don't, I, I think it might be listed in Amazon, but I don't know that they have a supply of them. Uh, mm -hmm. but they yeah. have to get that through us, and I haven't seen it, seen it recently. So, um, all my other books are on Amazon, but this one, I'm not sure, I'd have to check about that. I'm not sure. Easiest to get it from us, and we, we're, uh, We'll probably be discounting the price if we haven't or we did for the summer but we might discount the price just because we're revising the looks of it and just uh, tweaking a few things inside well thank you for joining us today and uh, we want to remind you that charlie bing has his own website grace life ministries and he speaks around the world uh, at conferences and training seminars for pastors and Charlie's always available to come to your church. You can contact him at Grace Life Ministries on the internet. And um, we sure appreciate your ministry. You've ministered to us individually um, as uh, Christians and as leaders. So Charlie, thank you for all that you do. Yeah. Well, Scott, I appreciate you and, 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 and everybody and what you, what you're doing with the podcast. And I know you, um, Thank you. I appreciate you when you're a pastor out in Washington, and uh, I know God's continuing to use you in your ministry. So thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Book Podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, like, follow, subscribe on any podcasting platform, on YouTube, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Simply type in at HearTheBookPod, at HearTheBookPod. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.